Welcome to Storytime Revolution. Today we are starting The Sign of the Beaver by Elizabeth George Spear, also the author of The Witch of Blackbird Pond. This one actually has my name in it from when I was a young child or teenager, and it was a book that I remember liking a lot. Chapter 1 Matt stood at the edge of the clearing for some time after his father had gone out of sight among the trees. There was a chance that his father might turn back, that perhaps he had forgotten something or had some last word of advice. This was one time Matt reckoned he wouldn't mind the advice, no matter how many times he had heard it before. But finally he had to admit that this was not going to happen. His father had really gone. He was alone with miles of wilderness stretching on every side. He turned and looked back at the log house. It was a fair house, he thought. His mother would have no cause to be ashamed of it. He had helped to build every inch of it. He had helped to cut down the spruce trees and haul the logs and squares to notch them. He had stood at one end of every log and raised it, one on top of the other fitting the notched ends together as snugly as though they had grown that way. He had climbed the roof to fasten down the cedar splints with long poles and dragged up pine boughs to cover them. Behind the cabin were mounds of corn he had helped to plant, the green blades already shooting up and the pumpkin vines just showing behind the stumps of trees. If it were only not so quiet. He had been alone before. His father had often gone to the forest to hunt for hours on end. Even when, even when he was there, he was not much of a talker. Sometimes they had worked side by side through a whole morning without his speaking a single word. But this silence was different. It coiled around Matt and reached into his stomach to settle there in a hard knot. He knew it was high time his father was starting back. This was part of the plan that the family had worked out together in the long winter of 1768, sitting by lamplight around the pine table back in Massachusetts. His father had spread out the surveyor's map and traced the boundaries of the land he had purchased in Maine territory. They would be the first settlers in a new township. In the spring, when the ice melted, Matt and his father would travel north. They would take passage on a ship to the settlement at the mouth of the Pinobiscot River. There they, would find a, some, there they would find some men with a boat to take them up the river and then up on a smaller river that branched off from it, many days distant from the settlement. Finally, they would strike out on foot into the forest and claim their own plot of land. They would clear a patch of ground, build a cabin, and plant some corn. In the summer, his father would go back to Massachusetts to fetch his mother and sister and the new baby, who would be born while they were gone. Matt would stay behind and guard the cabin and the corn patch. It hadn't been quite so easy as, as it had sounded back in their house in Quincy. Matt had had to get used to going to sleep at night with every muscle in his body aching, but the log house was finished. It had only one room. Before winter, they would add a loft for him and his sister to sleep in, Inside, there were shelves along one wall and a sturdy punchian table with two stools. One of these days, his father promised he would cut out a window and, fastened, and fasten oiled paper to let in the light. Someday, the paper would be re replaced by, with real glass. Against the wall was a chimney of smaller logs, daubed, 
and lined with clay from the creek. This, too, was a temporary structure. Over and over, his father had warned Matt that it wasn't as safe as a stone chimney and that he would, he would have to watch out for flying sparks. He didn't fear, after all the work of building this house, Matt wasn't going to let it burn down about his ears. Six weeks, his father had said that morning. Maybe seven. Hard to reckon exactly. With your ma and sister, we'll have slow going, especially with the new little one. You may lose track of the weeks, he added. Easy thing to do when you're, done, when you're alone. Might be well to make notches on a stick. Seven notches to a stick. When you get to the seventh stick, you can start looking for us. A silly thing to do, Matt thought, as though he couldn't count the weeks for himself. But he wouldn't argue about it, not on that last morning. Then his father reached up to a chink in the log wall and took down the battered tin box that held his watch and compass and a few silver coins. He took out the big silver watch. Every time you cut a notch, he said, remember to wind this up at the same time. Matt took the watch in his hand as gently as if it were a bird's egg. You aim to leave it, Pa? he asked. It belonged to your grandpa. Would have belonged to you anyhow sooner or later. Might as well be now. You mean it's mine? Aye, it's yourn. Be kind of company, hearing it tick. The lump in Matt's throat felt as big as the watch. This was the finest thing his father had ever possessed. I'll take care of it, he managed finally. I, I know you would. Mind you don't wind it up too tight. Then, just before he left, his father had given him a second gift. Thinking of it, Matt walked back into the cabin and looked up at his father's rifle, hanging on two pegs over the door. I'll take your old blunderbuss with me, his father had said. This one aims truer, but mind you, don't go banging away at everything that moves. Wait till you're dead sure. There's plenty of powder if you don't waste it. It was the first sign he had given that he felt uneasy about leaving Matt here alone. Matt wished now that he could have said something to reassure his father, instead of standing there tongue-tied. But if he had the chance again, he knew he wouldn't do any better. They just weren't a family to put things into words. He reached up and took down the rifle. It was lighter than his old match than his old matchlock, the one his father had carried away with him in exchange. This was a fine piece, the walnut stalk as smooth and shining as his mother's silk dress. It was a mite long, but it had good balance. With this gun, he wouldn't need to waste powder, so it wouldn't hurt to take one shot right now just to try the feel of it. He knew his father always kept that rifle as clean as a new polished spoon. But because he enjoyed handling it, Matt poked about in the touch hole with a metal pick. From the powder horn, he, took, he shook a little of the black powder into the pan. Then he took one lead bullet out of the pouch, wrapped it up in a patch of cloth, and rammed it into the barrel. As he worked, he whistled loudly into the stillness. It made the knot in his stomach loosen a little. As he stepped into the woods, a blue jay screeched a warning so it was some time before he spotted anything to shoot at. Presently, he saw a red squirrel hunched on a branch, with its tail curled up behind its ears. He lifted the rifle and sighted along the barrel, minding his father's advice and waiting till he was dead sure. The clean feel of the shot delighted him. 
It didn't set him back on his heel like heels like his old matchlock. Still, he hadn't quite got the knack of it. He caught the flick of a tail as a squirrel scampered away to an upper branch. I could do better with my own gun, he thought. This rifle of his father's was going to take some getting used to. Ruefully, he trudged back to the cabin for his noon meal. For his noon meal, he sat munching at a bit of the johnny cake his father had baked that morning. Already, he was beginning to realize that time was going to move slowly. A whole afternoon to go before he could cut that first notch. Seven sticks. That would be August. He would have a birthday before August. He supposed his father had forgotten that, with so many things on his mind. By the time his family got here, he would be 13 years old. Chapter 2 By the next morning, the tight place and his stomach was gone. By the morning after that, Matt decided that it was mighty pleasant living alone. He enjoyed walking, waking to a day stretched before him to fill as he pleased. He could set himself the necessary chores without having to listen to any advice about how they should be done. How could he have thought that the time would move slowly? As the days passed, and he cut one notch after another on his stick, Matt discovered that there was never time enough for all that must be done between sunrise and sunset. Although the cabin was finished, his father had left him the endless task of chinking the spaces between the logs with clay from the creek bank. At the edge of the clearing there were trees to fell to let in more sun on the growing corn, and underbrush that kept creeping closer over the cleared ground. All this provided plenty of wood to be chopped and stacked in the woodpile against the cabin wall. To cook a meal for himself once or twice a day, he had to keep a fire going. Twice in the first few days, he had waked and found the ashes cold. Back home in Quincy, if his, mother fire, if his mother's fire burned out, she had sent him, or Sarah, with her, head sh sh with her shovel to borrow a live coal from a neighbor. There were no neighbors here. He had to gather twigs and make a wad of shredded cedar bark. Then strike his flint and blow on the tiny spark until it burst into flame. A man could get mighty hungry before he had coaxed that spark into a cooking fire. The corn patch needed constant tending, and these hot, bright days, every drop of water that those green shoots demanded had to be lugged from the creek, a kettleful at a time. And there was no way to water the corn without encouraging the weeds as well. As fast as he pulled them, new ones sprang up. The crows drove him distracted, forever flapping about. A dozen times a day he would dash at them, fiercely shouting and waving his arms. They would just fly lazily off and wait on a nearby treetop till his back was turned. He dared not waste his precious powder on them. At night, wild creatures nibbled the tops of the green shoots. Once, he sat up all night with his white rifle across his knees, batting at the mosquitoes. When morning came, he stumbled into the cabin and slept away half a day. That was the second time he let the fire go out. He seemed to be hungrier than ever before in his life. The barrel of flour was going down almost as fast as it when two were dipping into it. He depended on his gun to keep his stomach filled. He was still proud of the ga that gun, but no longer in awe of it. Carrying it over his shoulder, he set out confidently into the forest, venturing farther each day certain of bringing home a duck or a rabbit for his dinner. For a change of diet, 
He could take his fish pole and follow the twisting course of the creek or walk the trail his father had blazed to a pond some distance away. In no time he could catch all the fish he could eat. Twice he had glimpsed a deer moving through the trees just out of range of his rifle. One of these days, he promised himself, he would bring one down. It was a good life, with only a few small annoyances buzzing like mosquitoes inside his head. One of these was the thought of Indians. Not that he feared them. His father had been assured by the proprietors that his new settlement would be safe. Since the last treaty with the tribes, there had not been an attack reported anywhere in this part of Maine. Still, one could not entirely forget all those horrid tales, and he just didn't like the feeling he had sometimes that someone was watching him. He couldn't prove it. He could never see anything more than a quick shadow that might be a moving branch, but he couldn't shake off the feeling that someone was there. One of those pieces of advice that father had been so fond of giving him had been about Indians. They won't bother you, he said. Most of them have left for Canada. The ones who stay don't want to make any trouble. But Indians take great stock in politeness. Should you meet one, speak to him just the same as to the minister back home. Matt had seen his father follow his own advice. Once, when they had tramped a long way from the cabin, they had seen in the distance a solitary, dark-skinned figure. The two men had nodded to each other gravely and lifted a hand in salute, exactly as if they had been two deacons passing the town square. But how could you be respectful to a shadow that would not show itself? It made Matt uneasy. He had grown used to the stillness. In fact, he knew now that the forest is rarely quiet. As he tramped through it, he was accompanied by the chirping, by the chirruping of birds, the chatter of squirrels, and the whine and twang of thousands of bothersome insects. In the night, he could recognize now the strange sound that used to startle him, the grunt of a porcupine rummaging in the garden, the boom of the great horned owl, the scream of some small creature pounced upon in the, in the forest, or the long, quavering cry of the loon from the distant pond. The first time he had heard that loon call, he had thought it was a wolf. Now he liked to hear it. Mournful as it was, it was the cry of another living creature. Matt would, wor would wor worm his shoulder into a comfortable spot in the hemlock bough that made his mattress, pull the blanket over his head, to shut out the mosquitoes and fall asleep well satisfied with his world. He would have liked, however, to have someone to talk to occasionally. He hadn't reckoned on missing that. For much of the day he was content to be alone, tramping through the woods or sitting on the bank of the creek, dangling his fish line. He was like his father in that, but there were times when he had thought he'd like to share with someone, with anybody, even his sister, Sarah, though he had never paid much mind to her at home, so he was not so quick-witted as he should have been when unexpectedly someone arrived. Chapter 3 He was sitting on the flat stone that served as a doorstep, waiting for his supper to cook. The late sun slanted in long yellow bars across the clearing. The forest beyond was already in shadow. Matt was feeling well pleased with his day. That morning he had shot a rabbit, 
He had skinned it carefully, stretching the fur against the cabin wall to dry. Chunks of the meat were boiling now in the kettle over the fire, and the good smell came through the door and made his mouth water. In the dimness of the trees, a darker shadow moved. This time it didn't disappear, but came steadily nearer. He could hear the crackle of twigs under heavy boots. Matt leaped to his feet. Pa? No answer. It wasn't his father, of course. It couldn't be. An Indian? Matt felt a curl of alarm against his backbone. He stood waiting, his muscles tensed. The man who came tramping out from the trees was not an Indian. He was heavyset, the fat bulging under a ragged blue army coat. His face was almost invisible behind a tangle of reddish whiskers. Halfway across the clearing, he stopped. Howdy! he called cheerfully. Hello? Matt answered uncertainly. Was this someone who ought to be greeted like a deacon? The stranger came closer so that Matt could see the small blue eyes that glittered in the weather-hardened face. The man stood deliberately taking his time, looking over the cabin and the cornfield. Nice place you got here. Matt said nothing. The man peered curiously over Matt's shoulder through the open door. He could easily see that the cabin was empty. You all alone here? Matt hesitated. My father's away just now. Be back soon, Willie. Matt was puzzled by his unwillingness to answer. He ought to be glad to see anyone after all these days alone, but somehow he wasn't. He didn't quite know why he found himself lying. Any time now, he said. He went back to the river to get supplies. Me might be back tonight. When I saw you coming, I thought it was him. Guess I surprised you. Reckon you don't get much company way off here. No, we don't, Matt answered. Then your pappy wouldn't want you to turn away a visitor, would he? The man asked. Thought maybe you'd ask me to stay for supper. I got a whiff of it half a mile off. Matt remembered his manners. The man's easy grin was beginning to wipe away some of his doubts. Of course, he said. Come in, sir. The man snorted. Ben's the name, he said. You may have heard of me in the river town. We didn't stay in the town very long, Matt answered. He hurried now to light a candle. The stranger stood inside the door, taking in every inch of the small room. Your pappy knows how to build a good tight house. You reckon on staying here for good? It's our land, Matt told him. In the candlelight, the, ma the room looked snug and homey, something to be proud of showing off to a stranger. My mother and sister will be coming soon. More folks coming all the time. Time was you could tramp for a month and never see a chimney. Now the towns is spreading out from the river every which way. His eyes fell on the rifle hanging over the door. He let out a slow, admiring whistle and walked over to run his hand along the stock. Mighty fine piece. Worth a passel of beaver. My father wouldn't sell it. Matt said shortly. He was busying himself now to make this stranger welcome. He scooped out a good measure of flour, stirred in some water, patted the dough on a clean ash board, and propped it up in front of the fire to bake. He laid out the two bowls on the table and two pewter spoons. He poured molasses into the one pewter dish, and then he ladled the hot stews into the bowls. 
the way that stew disappeared that Stranger couldn't have eaten a meal for a good while. Matt took a very small share for himself. He pulled back his hand and watched the man snatch the last bit of corn cake. Sopping up the last of the molasses with it. Finally, Ben pushed back his stool and drew the back of his hand across his beard. Well, that was mighty tasty, son, mighty tasty. You wouldn't have a mite of tobacco now, would you? I'm sorry. My father doesn't have any. Pity. Can't be helped, I suppose. In the easy silence that followed, Matt decided to ask a question of his own. Are you traveling to the river? Ben snorted again. Not likely. I'm keeping his fur off that I'm keeping his fur off from that river as I can till things quiet down. Matt waited. Tell the truth, I got away from that town just in time. Weren't nothing they could prove, but they sure had it in for me. So I says, Ben, I says, you been planning on getting yourself some beaver pelts. Look like now's the time to get moving. I aim to settle in with them redskins a bit. Maybe move on north. You mean you're going to live with the Indians? Could do worse. I can bed down about anywheres. It certainly looked as though he invited or not. Ben was planning on bedding down right here in the cabin. He had eased himself off the stool and sprawled out on the floor, his shoulders propped up against the wall. He pulled the dirty corncob pipe from his pocket and stared down at it ruefully. Pity, he said again. Meal like that needs backy to settle it right. He put the pipe away and shifted his heavy bulk against the wall. When I was not much more than your age, he drawled, well-fed and ready to talk, I'd spend the whole winter with the Redskins, hunt with them, trap, easy to pick up with their lingo, still remember a deal of it, but this country ain't the same anymore. You've got to go west, Ohio maybe, to get any decent trapping. The Indians still hunt there, don't they? Matt asked. The Indians have mostly cleared out of these parts, Ben told them. What wasn't killed off in the war got took with the sickness. A deal of them moved on to Canada. What's left makes a mighty poor living, game getting so scarce. Where do they live? Mm, roundabout, Ben waved vaguely toward the forest. They make small camps for a while, then move on. Then the Penobiscots stick like burrs, won't give up. They still hunt and trap. No way to stop them. Never got it through their head. They don't still own this land. You never seen one of them? My father did once. Do they speak English? Enough to get what they want. They pick it up from the traders. What pelts they can scrap together, they take into the towns. They can strike a sharp deal. You gotta know how to handle them. Reason you ain't seen them, he went on. They got enough sense to clear out of these parts when the bugs is bad. They move off the whole lot down to the coast to get their year's mess of clams. Should be moving back about now. They'll stay, they'll stay the summer, then go off for the big hunt come fall. Them hunts, he remembered, ain't nothing like him nowadays. Bows and arrows was all they had. Still use them some, if they can't lay their hand on a gun. I got so I was to dim, dimmed near as good as any of them. 
Don't suppose I could hit a barn door now. Ben's voice drawled on and on, thickened with food and drowsiness. He told of the big moose haunts of his days with the Indians. He had fought in the recent war against the French, and he despised them for stirring up the Indians against the main settlements. He seemed to have single-handedly shot down half the French army. Especially he hated the Jesuit, Jesuit priest who had egged the redskins on, and he had once been part of the expedition that broke into a chapel and smashed the popish idols. Once he had been taken captive by a fierce, by the fierce Ericu, I think it's Ericu, who were set on putting him to torture, but he had been too smart for them and escaped in the night. Listening, Matt couldn't make the man out. To hear him talk, he had been as big a hero as Jack the Giant Killer, but he didn't look the part. He had certainly fallen on hard times of late, no doubt about it. However, he could tell a good story. The man's voice was trailing off, and he slumped lower and lower. Presently, he was sprawled flat on the floor and snoring. It was clear enough that he could bed down anywhere. At least he hadn't taken Matt's bed. Matt moved about quietly, though he doubted anything could disturb his guest. He cleaned off the bowls with his twig brush, and then he banked the fire with ashes. Finally, he settled down on his hemlock mattress. But he couldn't sleep. He lay staring up at the log roof. Even after the last flickers of the fire had died away and the cabin was in darkness, he couldn't quite... He couldn't quiet his uneasy thoughts. Bragging about his adventures by the fire, Ben had seemed harmless, just a fat, tired old man grateful for a good meal. To be honest, Matt had enjoyed his company. Now he began to worry. How long was Ben going to stay? He was sure to find out soon that Matt was living alone. When he did, would he decide it was more comfortable here than in an Indian village? At the rate he wolfed down that supper, the flour and molasses wouldn't hold out long. Would he expect Matt to go on providing meals and waiting on him? And why had he left that town on the river in such a hurry? Was there really some charge against him? Was he dangerous? Perhaps even a murderer? At the thought, Matt sat up on his pine bed. He'd be sensible to stay awake on the guard. He'd half a mind to fetch down his father's rifle and keep it near at hand. And then he felt ashamed. What would his father say about begrudging a stranger a meal and a night's rest? All the same, he was determined not to shut his eyes that night. He kept them open for a long time, but suddenly he jerked out of a deep sleep and saw that daylight was streaming across the cabin floor. The cabin door was open, and the man was gone. Perhaps he had only stepped outside. Matt stumbled to the door. No sign of the stranger. Relief flooded over him. All that worrying, and the man had never intended to stay. Perhaps he had actually believed the lie that his father was returning that day. Then once again, Matt felt ashamed. He must have made it only too plain that Ben wasn't welcome. Would Paul say he had done wrong? Still, it was too early to be sure. At any moment, Ben might appear hungry for breakfast. He had better stir up some fresh corn cake. It was then that he noticed his father's rifle was not hanging over the door. In a panic, he searched the cabin, his own bed, the corner shelves, under the table, and the stools. He rushed back to the door, and on the edge of the forest, it was no use. 
No way of telling which way the man had taken or how long he had been on his way while Matt slept. Ben was gone, and so was the rifle. He should have kept it in his hands, as his hunch had warned him. He could see now that the man had had his mind set on that gun from the moment he laid eyes on it. But even Matt had had, his, had, had it in his hands. Could he have held it against those burly arms? And to keep his gun, could he actually have shot a man, even a criminal? It was only later, when his rage began to die down, that he felt the prickle of fear. Now he had no protection and no way to get meat. Sick with anger, he sat staring at his row of notched sticks. It would be a month at least before his father returned. A month of nothing but fish? And what would his father say? Chapter 4 It was hard to be deprived of the hunting. Now, whenever he went into the forest, the squirrels and the rabbits frisked about boldly, knowing perfectly well he had no gun in his hands. Once, he was certain he could have had a good shot at a deer. Instead, he went fishing. And he knew he ought to be grateful that the creek and the pond could provide all the food he needed, even though fish didn't seem to stick to his ribs like a good meat stew. Here and there, in a sunny spot, he discovered a patch of blueberries. Gradually, his spirits rose again. The July weather was perfect. The flies and mosquitoes were less bothersome. He began to count the days ahead instead of the ones he had notched. Two or three more sticks and his family would be here. The corn was growing taller. The little hard green pumpkins were rounding out. He could wait a little longer. Perhaps he even became a mite careless. He had been fishing all one morning, a good clear day, the water still nippy on his ankles, the sun warm on his bare head. He had followed the creek a long way and had a lucky catch. He came whistling out of the woods, swinging four speckled trout. He quieted down of a sudden when he heard a crackling in the underbrush close by. Then he stopped, short, at sight of the cabin. The door was swinging open at a crazy angle, one hinge broken. Across the door sill, some white stuff dribbled like spilled flour. With a shout, he dropped the fish and ran. It was flour, cracked all over the cabin floor. The sack ripped open and dragged across the room. The cabin was in shambles. The stools overturned, the shelf swept bare, the precious molasses bag, molasses keg upside down on the floor and empty. Ben must have come back. For a moment, hot sparks of anger drove out every sensible thought in his head. Then he knew it couldn't have been Ben. Ben was too fond of food to waste it. Indians? No. It wasn't possible any human being would scatter food about like this. With a sinking heart, he realized what had happened. He remembered the thrashing in the underbrush. It had to be a bear. Somehow, he had neglected to bar the door securely. Well, the damage was done, and the bear would be half a mile away by now. Helpless with fury at his own carelessness, he stood for some time in the middle of the cabin, unable to pull his wits together. Then he went down on his hands and knees and carefully began to scrape up the traces of flour. After a time, he gave up. The best he had managed to salvage was two handfuls of gritty, unappetizing meal. Even though he took the good pewter spoon and dug into the hollows, hollows of the dirt floor. 
After a long time, he felt hungry enough to remember the fish. Half-heartedly, he cleaned them and blew up the fire and roasted them. He found a few grains of salt left in the tin to sprinkle on them. He would have to make the best of it. He wouldn't starve as long as he had a fish line, but tomorrow he would not even have salt. Chapter 5 Day after day he kept remembering the bee tree. He and his father had discovered it weeks ago, high in a tree at the swampy edge of the pond they had called Loon Pond. The bees were buzzing in and out of an old woodpecker hole. Matt had thought they were wild bees, but his father said no. There were no bees at all in America till the colonists brought them from England. This swarm must have escaped from one of the river towns. Bees were better left alone, Pa said. He felt he could scarcely endure another meal of plain fish. He was hungry for a bit of something tasty. Knowing so well his fondness for molasses, his mother had persuaded them to carry that little keg all the way to Maine when his father would rather have gone without. She would have smiled to see him running his finger round and round the empty keg like a child and licking off the last drop the bear had missed. Now he couldn't stop thinking about that honey. It would be worth a sting or two just to have a taste of it. There couldn't be much danger going up that tree and taking just a little... A cup full, perhaps, that the bees would never miss. One morning he made up his mind to try it, come what might. It was an easy tree to climb, with branches as neatly placed as the rungs of a ladder. The bees did not seem to notice as he pulled himself higher and higher. Even when his head was on level with the hole, they flew lazily in and out, not paying him any mind. The hole was small, not big enough for his hand, and the spoon he had brought with him. Peering in, he could just glimpse far inside the golden mass of honeycomb. The bark all around the hole was rotted and crumbling. Cautiously, he put his finger on the edge and gave a slight tug. A good-sized piece of bark broke off into his hand. With it came the bees. With a furious buzzing, they came pouring from the broken hole. The humming grew to a roar like a great wind. Matt felt a sharp pain on his neck. Then another and another. The angry creature swarmed along his hands and bare arms and hair and on his face. How he got down out of that tree he never remembered. Water! If he could reach the water he could escape them. Bellowing and waving his arms he plunged toward the pond. The bees were all around him. He could not see through the whirling cloud of them. The boggy ground sucked at his feet. He pulled one foot clear out of his boot, went stumbling over sharp roots to the water's edge and flung himself forward. His foot caught in a fallen branch and he wrenched it clear. Dazed with pain, he sank down to the icy shelter of the water. He came up choking. Just above the water, the angry bees circled. Twice more, he ducked his head and held it down till his lungs were bursting. He tried to swim out into the pond, but his feet were tangled and dragging weeds. When he tried to jerk them free, a fierce pain ran up his legs, and he went under again, thrashing arms wildly. Then something lifted him. His head came up from the water, and he gulped air into his aching lungs. He felt strong arms around him. Half-conscious, he dreamed that his father was carrying him, and he did not wonder how this could be. Presently, he knew he was lying on dry ground. 
Though his eyelids were swollen almost shut, he could see two figures bending over him, unreal, half-naked figures with dark faces. Then, as his wits began to return to him, he saw that they were Indians, an old man, and a boy. The man's hands were reaching for his throat, and in panic, Matt tried to jerk away. Not move, a deep voice ordered. Bees' needles have poison, must get out. Matt was too weak to struggle. He could not even lift his head. Now that he was out of the cold water, his skin seemed to be on fire from head to toe, yet he could not stop shivering. He had to lie helpless while the man's hands moved over his face and neck and body. Gradually, he realized that they were gentle hands, probing and rubbing at one tender spot after another. His panic began to die away. He could still not think clearly. Things seemed to be keep fading away before he could quite grasp them. He could not protest when the man lifted him again and carried him like a baby. It did not seem to matter where they were taking him, but shortly he found himself lying on his own bed in his own cabin. He was alone. The Indians had gone. He lay, too tired and sore to figure out how he came to be there, knowing only that the nightmare of whirling bees and choking water was past and that he was safe. Some time passed. Then once again the Indian was bending over him, holding a wooden spoon against his lips. He swallowed in spite of himself. Even when he found it was not food but some bitter medicine, he was left alone again, and presently he slept.